I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Sarah Tomley, co-founder of the Who the Hell Is series of books with Alice Bowden, a wonderful series of books exploring the life, times, and ideas of the world's greatest thinkers. She originally studied philosophy at university before working in book publishing for more than 20 years as editor and commissioning editor for some of the UK's most prestigious publishing houses. Sarah has commissioned many best-selling reference books, including the philosophy book and the award-winning the psychology book from Big Ideas. More recently, she trained in counseling and psychotherapy, and her latest book, What Would Freud Do?, has been translated into 11 languages. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L Your support is greatly appreciated. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry Available from Trapart Books, 2019 Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Thank you for inviting me on. Um, yeah, I'm involved in a I guess it's a startup publishing company, um, and we are producing books that kind of the aim is to introduce the ideas of really the world's greatest thinkers um, in a in a genuinely accessible way. Um, and there are kind of two things behind this. One is that um, my partner Alice Bowden and I were. Um, well, to be honest, we were very often finding ourselves embarrassed when in a conversation or reading the paper, when someone would mention a big name and one of us would be thinking, like, who the hell is, you know, Karl Marx, I probably got a slight handle on, but there are certainly big names where these names crop up. And I think it's kind of awkward for people to, to kind of admit maybe that, like, we don't know who they are and what they did. Um, well, not so even if you do know their name or know a bit about them. I mean, we can't all read and study in depth everybody and everything, you know. So it's really nice to have kind of primers or things to like bring you up to date on like all of their biggest ideas. And their. And I love that you include their history in with it and how that ties in. Yeah, that was really important to me because the more Alice and I talked about it, um, really this came, that it became very important to me to kind of, investigate where ideas come from because ideas don't exist in a vacuum you know they're going to come up as a kind of result of both the the sort of zeitgeist um so the culture in which somebody has been born into and is surrounded by 
as well as the people in their field when they finally go on to kind of study at university, um, but also the, the person's actual life. That, you know, of course, from my studies in psychotherapy, it's, it's very obvious that, that what we think about and the way we think about things and the things that really fascinate us are going to have a lot to do with who we are and what has happened in our lives. So, so it seemed to, to me that, um, yeah, these great ideas that they came up with, they kind of make more sense when you embed them into the person's life and into the world in which they were living. So whether it was the 17th century France or 20th century America, that that really, really made a difference to, to what kind of things they were thinking about and where their ideas kind of, yeah, where their minds were flying, actually. Yeah, and that's often something you don't even get in academia is like someone's kind of biography. Yeah, um, and we have kind of really encouraged our authors because many of them were kind of more at ease with talking about the ideas. So we had to really kind of convince them like, no, no, we really, really genuinely wanted to know like who the hell is, you know, Sammy Milgram, you know, um, Nietzsche, all these people like who, who was the person? What, what happened to them? What, what was their life like? What was that world like? Because I think it really does genuinely help in understanding the ideas, as well as, you know, everybody likes a story. It's good to start with the story. <laughs> so the story of their lives and the world they're in and the kind of intellectuals that were buzzing around them at the time, which is also kind of fascinating to get that intellectual context. Right, and it situates them in history instead of them just being these like names that are just like kind of floating around in this, you know, pool of ideas that we have. And yeah, yeah, where they seem to be like, as you say, absolutely, kind of that they're weirdly free floating, and of course that's not the case. Like they weren't at all. Um, yeah, because you know our book on Melanie Klein, obviously Klein wouldn't be here without Freud and the rest of the psychoanalytic analytic community that was kind of already up and running. Um, so yeah, there's a kind of, and also then her own life is also kind of figuring in there. It's, it's just, um, I don't know, I guess maybe I'm saying I find it really fascinating to, 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 to learn about the person themselves as well as the kind of almost drier actual concepts that, that were so hugely influential. No, I do too. And I think it really sets this series apart. And like I said, when I, I discovered this, I, I mean, I, jumped right on it. I was like, this, this is an amazing idea and such a great project. Mm, great. That's very kind. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I also <laughs> love that you just say who the hell is and you don't put like little asterisks or stars or, you know, you don't like cut it out. You just say who the hell is. <laughs> yeah, that did feel kind of risky. Um, but I think it's because we wanted to reflect the actual thought that we both had of when somebody is talking about, you know, somebody like Klein or Nietzsche or someone that, that, that in, in our, the actual thought that would run through my mind is who the hell is Nietzsche? You know, who the hell is? And it was like, well, let's just answer that question as fully as we can. Yeah, I think uh, it's great. Yeah. So and it's, it's a lot of fun to put together. Yeah. Have you chosen who to do first? <laughs> Well, actually, we kind of cheated to begin with because, um, yeah, Alice, my partner, is is an art historian. So she really wanted to write a book on somebody called Erwin Panofsky, an art critic. Uh, well, he was kind of one of the seminal figures in art history. And um, 
And I have to admit, actually, that, yeah, even even I've got a degree in psychotherapy and, and, and a degree in philosophy. And when I looked at Panofsky's own work, I found it way too complex to understand. So although I, I'm not an art historian, I just said to Alice, yes, I think the world does need this guy's ideas translating into some kind of an accessible form so that we can actually grasp because I you know I could see that he was really important but it some of these people write in such an intricate way in their own words that it it is very very hard to grasp um, especially given that we're not living in the same context and time as them so there's a kind of almost a kind of not an updating but a kind of clarifying for for readers today um, of language that may have been more accessible 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you have Melanie Klein. Yes, we love Melanie Klein. Uh, yes, and we're planning, um, yeah, lots of other, lots of other books on psychology. Um, we've got, we've, yeah, we've got a great one coming up on Stanley Milgram. I think that'll be really fun. Um, in fact, Stanley Milgram has been a favorite of mine since I, a very long time ago, watched a film of him um, giving a, a lecture where he was walking around a, a, a city talking about psychology. And in the middle of this lecture, he sits down at a, he sits down at a kind of cafe bar. And, uh, and this film is from the 70s. And, and as he's still lecturing to camera, a waiter comes out and says, would you like a drink? And he says, I'll have a dry martini. And then he just goes on chatting and lecturing while then drinking a dry martini, which I thought was absolutely fabulous. So I don't know if we'll get that in the book because it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fairly kind of, uh, yeah, not exactly an essential bit of knowledge, but yeah, yeah I do like Milgram a lot. And obviously, fun and idiosyncrasies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also because, you know, he was writing about authority. He was writing about um, the way that we are so incredibly susceptible to to being ordered to do something by figures who are in authority or look as though they're in authority. And yet he was clearly not one to kind of stick to the rules at all. Um, so there's probably something in there and I can't tell you yet because we haven't, the, the, the author is still writing that one, but I think they'll, yeah, I think I'm really looking forward to that one. That'll be really fascinating. Um, yeah, then there's in within psychology we also have one coming up on um, Piaget and B.F. Skinner, uh, and then we have we basically are looking at producing books at the moment across five disciplines: so psychology, philosophy, art history, sociology, and politics. Um, and we did originally have feminism as a standalone um, topic and then we had a series of conversations Alice and I but also with some of our authors and actually it occurred to us that really feminism is is part of politics that perhaps it was time to recognize that feminism is you know it's a political movement mm -hmm. so famous feminists shouldn't be in this kind of standalone almost strange thing just called feminism but actually they should just be in the politics list because that is where they deserve to be um so yeah so the, the feminists we have books planned on will all be appearing in our in our politics list wonderful um, integrated it's 
integrated, but also really kind of recognised as being political. That they're not. It's not some kind of bizarre women's studies thing off, off on its own. Which I, I just think that's kind of been a way, possibly, of sidelining them mm-hmm. and sidelining their importance. And I think when you put them, when you put them within the political arena, alongside you know the great civil rights, um, the people who fought for that, that, that all those kinds of things that. Yeah, they should all be in politics. Mm-hmm. So, so that became quite important, actually. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think you mentioned the word integration um, earlier, and I was thinking, um, yeah, for, for us, this is we're integrating very many things. We're we're kind of we're interested in in kind of. Um, the crossovers between disciplines. Um, so yeah, so Olympe de Gouges is an 18th century playwright who was also um, a fierce political activist who was um, put to death in the French Revolution. Um, and it's kind of anything to do with crossovers and integration. So I guess really the kind of um, the reasons that, that I got particularly interested in this, I guess, is that because I have studied philosophy and psychotherapy, um, but I also worked in publishing for about 25 years and um, worked on on some really great reference books. Like, I don't know if you know, DK did a series of um, books called Big Ideas Books. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I worked on the first sort of four or five of those. So I was one of the main editors on the philosophy book and then the psychology book. And um, and actually that was the first time that it struck me that in those books we did little biographies on the people that were being written about, um, sort of alongside some of the things they talked about. And it just struck me over and over again how many of the philosophers had spent a long time ill in bed as children in a time where there was obviously no TV or internet. And uh, so they had had nothing to do except think. So these, some of these great thinkers in philosophy did have to spend an awful lot of time just thinking as kids. And I just found that really striking at the time. And then likewise in the psychology book, I was kind of reading these kind of mini biographies all the time where um, a lot of these really kind of seminal psychologists were had kind of ended up really studying something that had been and it's like it's not a it's not it's not a surprise perhaps but things that had really been important within their own lives um so kind of i guess one of the most famous ones is eric erickson um who as you know is like a great expert on identity and uh and and it came about because his own identity was completely kind of in question that um, he never knew who his father was. He was given the the surname, the last name of um, the man who was his mother's husband when he was born or just after he was born. Um, but then his married, his mother got divorced and married another man when he was three. So Erickson had this. He had a father that he had no information on at all. He carried the last name of a man who left his life when he was three. Um, and he felt all his life that he didn't really know who he was. Um, 
And then as he grew up, he, he, he suffered what he ended up calling an aggravated identity crisis. But identity crisis was his own term. Like this was not really something anyone had studied before. Mm. Um, and then actually almost, I don't know, is it by chance? Maybe nothing is by chance, but he, went, he ended up teaching art in a school that was um, run on psychoanalytic principles. And that kind of, there he got intrigued with all of that. And then he became a psych psychoanalyst. And then he produced, you know, amazing work on identity. Um, so yeah, again, it's the kind of incidence of, of somebody's fascination with something and that's really personal to them, becoming a kind of area in which their mind kind of goes swimming at great depth and then produces these really incredible kind of ideas. That's brilliant. I didn't know that about Eric Erickson. Yeah, I know, isn't it? It makes perfect sense, yeah. Yeah. Um, or um, another one is um, the, the, the French analyst um, Boris Cyrulnik. And I hope French people will give me, forgive my bad pronunciation there, because that's clearly not right. Um, but he was born in, uh, he was born in 1937 to, and his parents were Jewish. And um, he was born just before the, yeah, just before the Second World War. And then when, when um, Germany came and started to take control of parts of France, um, his parents were terrified about what would happen and they gave him into the care of foster parents. As it turned out just before, they were arrested and taken to Auschwitz where they died. Um, so they thought that they had at least had him safe, but in fact his foster parents um, ended up giving him sort of handing him over to the German authorities in return for money. Mm -hmm. um, and somehow he managed to escape and he worked on, he hid by working on farms and he, he somehow managed to stay alive. And, and he ended up being an absolute expert on resilience and trauma. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, this is kind of what we're seeing crop up over and over again, that it is, it is something in their lives. That, that really leads them to do this this kind of really kind of sort of deep dive into into something and it's the deep dive that is essential for bringing out something new i think yeah absolutely and you know when you are a psychoanalyst or a psychotherapist you see how these are these ideas and uh, dynamics are at play in people's lives in whatever kind of profession they end up uh in so it's really interesting to uh, think about it when the profession is specifically about the mind or consciousness or thought yeah. or those sorts of things. Yeah. And yeah. the other thing that it brings to mind is, um, so Rendering Unconscious is also a book. And in the introduction of the book uh, that I edited together, um, I talk about that because I think it's something that's not talked about in uh, psychoanalysis and psychology in general enough is like how many psychoanalysts were persecuted during World War II and how many people, yeah. um, you know, how many people died or committed suicide or practiced in secret during that time. Um, yeah, yeah. And then the great flight of all those intellectuals to, to, to America, mm -hmm. um, which brought up all those kind of great cultural theorists as well. Um, Adorno and that, that kind of Frankfurt School, there was a lot of, a lot of that flight, yeah. 
Um, and of course, then psychoanalysis is all about, you know, didn't Freud refer to it as a kind of archaeology, but it's, it's all about everything that's hidden and buried and, and lost. Yeah. And how does that, and in what ways is that going to work its way to the surface? Mm-hmm, exactly. And it's going to be in so many ways. Yeah, some of them helpful, some of them not so helpful to the person. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, yeah, as you say, it is always, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be um, generating, generating an, an energy down in, down in the unconscious. And exactly. It's, yeah, and you've got that energy that's the kind of, yeah, I know Freud didn't, <laughs> he didn't include that as a drive, but just now I'm thinking, wow, that really is a drive, actually. Some of those, those are creating a kind of real drive into certain places from that, from the sort of, um, the built-up energy in the unconscious around certain things. It's kind of, it, it, it is going to seek expression. Exactly, the return of the repressed. Yeah. But even things that, even sort of things that you don't know you're repressing, and I know that's kind of part of repression. <laughs> uh, but yeah, one of the strange things is that you, I think sometimes we, yeah, or maybe this is just me, who knows, thinks that the return of the press, repressed is that we, we kind of know what we've repressed, but actually we don't. That's why it's so bizarre when it comes up. And maybe that's why all these people have only been presented as kind of having these very clean ideas that came from nowhere. I don't know. You know, because this connection, these connections are not generally made between the ideas and the life. So it, it has always looked like they were just like chance or, yeah. Yeah, or they were just like, like studying <laughs> other people's ideas, you know, but like in this sort of vacuum of tunnel of ideas. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, the more, as you say that, I'm thinking, yeah, that's crazy that we ever even bought that. It just seems um, kind of mad to me to think that now. It seems like yeah. a cultural amnesia of sorts, like the whole culture has repressed certain certain aspects of the culture and everything that goes along with it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's something about, um, I don't know whether this is something to do with that rise of rationality from the kind of enlightenment onwards, that, that somehow these ideas have to be kind of rational, clean, clear, um, not, not, not to be seen in any way tainted by emotion or subjectivity, maybe. That um, in order for them to, to kind of be accepted as big ideas, the people themselves had to kind of almost stand well back from them as though there is no personal engagement. Yeah, that's a really good point. They have to be like objective truths and not something stemming from someone's childhood trauma. Yeah. Yeah. That 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 might have that might have kind of muddied the ideas in some way and that may rendering them sort of less acceptable, I guess. Maybe, I don't know. I'm we're conjecturing now, but Yeah. But it's, kind of, <laughs> but it's interesting. It's it's you know, I can see that as a kind of possibility if this the great fight that there has always been between objectivity and rationalism on the one hand and, and subjectivity and, and allow, some kind of allowance for emotions on the other, that that's kind of, that's definitely an old, old fight. Um, yeah, and I think we still, we still kind of see that today, whether it's in psychology or anything else, this, this need for, well, this apparent need for 
objectivity and everything else is kind of worthless. You know, I don't know. Yeah, and hopefully I, mean, I think that's starting to erode now. People are getting more uh, into the ideas of like truths being um, being part of subjectivity or being resonant between subjectivities. And yeah, do you think? I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it it allows flexibility, doesn't it? It it does it does that does seem to signify a move away from from rigidity. I think that that if 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 it if we are allowed to begin to see that, gosh, like actually, the really ancient Greek philosophers said that you know that truth is you know the idea of truth is that it's all subjective that it really does depend on your perspective. Um, you know, what's hot to one person is not hot to another. It's everything is, yeah, the, the idea of different perspectives. And I'm just thinking as, as we're talking here, you know, this kind of ties in with identity politics. And, and the other thing that feels like such a big switch at the moment, which is to begin to take away the absolute kind of primacy of the kind of white Western view of the world and of history. Mm -hmm. And to begin to really allow some of the other voices to be heard at last, and then the kind of um, the revision of, of of how we have seen the history of the world so far, as it as it starts to be able to hear something from all the different voices that that have always been written out of history, you know, that it is extraordinary, and it is it's so enriching. Um, it's kind of exciting times, I think, because. I think we are beginning to hear, hear from a, just a much wider range of voices. Um, and that's one thing that's a little bit depressing sometimes about working, well, especially looking at the kind of the big thing or the, the, the big thinkers who have so far been acknowledged within um, philosophy and psychology is that we've really only heard from, from the kind of white Western white westerners we've not not really heard so much from other people so i'm i'm really hopeful that these fields and all the fields will begin to get far more interesting as we as it kind of opens up to 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 bring in new new perspectives and voices and yeah and all the richness that comes with that absolutely what brought you into the uh, field of psychology and philosophy in the first place like how did your interest start <laughs> Well, of course, classically with my own life. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, I was brought up in an extremely dysfunctional family with um, a father who was alcoholic and then psychotic for about five years before he died. Um, and I was only 11 when he died. Um, so I was kind of brought up in a house where Almost reality itself was up for question um, because my father was hallucinating horrible things all over the place. So to be a, a young child growing up with that and not quite like, you know, when somebody's saying this is over there and you can't see it, it does. It's kind of challenging in terms of knowing what's reality and what's not. It's confusing. Um, very confusing. Very confusing. So. Um, so I think I just set off on a, on, a, on a course of like I need to, I need to get more knowledge, and I need to get it from outside sources. Um, so I was always, um, 
an avid book reader. Um, and yeah, books have played a huge part in my life. So it's not surprising to me actually that I worked in publishing for 25 years. It's kind of a, they're almost a talisman for me, I think. Um, but yeah, so I, I first went to philosophy to see if I could find out um, about the mind, about the human mind. Um, how does it work? What, what's going on up there? What, what's real, what's not? I mean, philosophy, you know, it, it puts up all the greatest questions and the biggest questions of all, really. Um, though I do clearly remember the philosophy lecturer asking me, or telling, warning me, really, in my uh, interview to go to universities, he said, um, yeah, do, I hope you're not expecting answers to all the big questions. So if you study philosophy, it will throw up the biggest questions, and then we'll talk about them. But there aren't any answers. Which is kind of disappointing and intriguing at the same time. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I love studying philosophy, and then I worked in publishing, so I kind of went back to the kind of falling on, in back in love with the books. And um, so then it wasn't, but then I also did have, throughout my life, over the last sort of 30 years or so, I've had quite a lot of therapy on and off in different forms. Um, and then in about 2010, 11, I decided to give that sort of full-time attention and really, uh, yeah, kind of dive into psychotherapy in the way that I had into philosophy to as a kind of different way of, of trying to find out how the mind works, what's real, what's normal. They kind of they kind of go around the same arena in the same way. Those in a different way. Those disciplines, um, in terms of yeah. So we're back to kind of truth again, as you were talking about earlier. The different kinds of truth. That his here are different ways of approaching some of those same kind of conundrums. Um, yeah, and then um, I was lucky enough. Of, um, three years ago to be commissioned to, to write a book um, and it's called What Would Freud Do? Um, it's the best title. <laughs> well that's also part of a series actually but that, that was the first one and um, and so somebody that I'd known through publishing and he knew that I'd, that I'd studied psychotherapy and, and he said that he wanted to do um, he wanted to do a book that was based on kind of agony art style Kind of magazine type questions or problems and and then to write to write answers to the problems as though by a psychotherapist not necessarily freud but a psychotherapist and uh so i thought that was kind of a challenge because um i said psychotherapists don't really give answers <laughs> uh to which uh, my friend my great friend trevor said um he said there do you want the money or not and i went okay i'll figure it out so, um, so actually it was really fun because I, I came up with, I had to come up with 40 questions, um, which were kind of care, fairly carefully thought out so that each one would kind of fairly naturally lead me to talk about the work of a particular psychotherapist or psychologist and how they might approach that problem. And then also to kind of, in most of them, to say, hmm, but what would Freud have said? <laughs> so I was kind of musing and putting on my Freud thinking cap of what Freud might have made of it. And uh, yeah, so that was really, it was really fun to write because it did bring in my love of psychotherapy and my love of publishing. Um, so that was a really fun book to write. 
and uh, yeah, and it's sold really well around the world. I think it's in eleven, maybe twelve languages. Um, so yeah, there's a kind of there's yeah there's there are more books more books and publishing in me than meets the eye. <laughs> Because you're very kind to invite me on to talk about the Who the Hell Is series, but but yeah, books books are hugely important to me, yeah, personally and and professionally. So they they've been a lifesaver for me. I mean, I think I am really genuinely attached to them as part of of my own survival, to be honest. Um, so yeah, so I'm actually deeply grateful to some of these people who have thought about all of these things in, across all these disciplines so deeply because at various times those ideas have been you know life-saving to me um, and really grounding and obviously along with lots of kind of just fantastic fiction as well I'm not ever going to lose the, the, the writers that I love in fiction but um, yeah so I think I am kind of genuinely um, committed to books in a quite extraordinary way, I guess. Absolutely. And now you're creating a series of books to be able to share these ideas with a larger audience so you can reach more people. Yeah. And and in a way where these ideas are, you know, you can you can kind of have that aha moment where you really get it. Um, so that they're not kind of dry bones ideas that are kind of just brushed over, but where you really you kind of really genuinely grasp something. Um, it's kind of a strange distinction, but I'm hoping you know what I mean. Absolutely. <laughs> so read about it, that you actually kind of grasp it, that in some way your mind does something quite difficult. It's like different. It's like the mind really genuinely picks something up suddenly and goes, I can do something with this. This is really genuinely interesting. This is, this is like good stuff in some way. Yeah, exactly. It really uh, has an impact instead of, you know, a lot of times, sometimes when I read, I won't name particular philosophers or academics, but sometimes when I read um, some books that, you know, I understand and I enjoy the gist of what they're saying, but it's like they could have said the same thing in like a quarter of the pages. And I feel like they just make things overly complicated for not, I mean, not really any reason except for maybe to impress other people or impress their colleagues or to like yeah. be able to fill their quota of publishing they need to fill. <laughs> but the yeah. idea is like, I really appreciate when ideas actually come forward in a straightforward manner, you know? Yeah, and then you're absolutely right that actually all the time that I was commissioning uh, reference books, um, that that was very often the problem was that I was always saying to people, like, write it so we can run it, really understand what you're talking about. And but the the kind of desire to show off, um, it did very often kind of <laughs> totally get in the way because, uh, yeah, there's something there about the author needing it to, to be about them, and I'd be saying, no, it's not about you. It's about it's about you know marks or whoever. It's it's about that person. It's not about you. Um, but yeah, that darned ego is getting in the way all the time. Yeah. And so I think that is that is really, in my experience, that has been a problem with commissioning these books is that the author's ego does tempt them into a kind of, um, into writing actually as obliquely as possible as a way of kind of looking clev more clever. Right. And I'm like, 
I don't want you to be clever. I want you, I want the cleverness here has to go into really making it as simple as possible. It's kind of like the very clean, simple lines of Picasso. I, I don't want a great fussy thing. I want it as clean and simple as possible. And yeah, that, that is surprisingly hard for, for authors to understand. <laughs> No, it is. It's like we we know you're clever. That's why we're asking you to do the book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I think there's a, a kind of confusion on their part that they think if they write it in very simple, plain English, that it that it will it will make them look dumber than if they write in kind of words with as many syllables as possible. And yeah, I I don't think that's true at all. But I think I think yeah, people, a lot of authors do believe that. Especially if they're coming from academia, because I know, you know, I, I trained as a psychoanalyst in New York and um, I got really frustrated with the field, not because there's, there's so many amazing ideas and I felt like every time I go to a conference or a study group or a talk or whatever, it was always like the same, I mean, it was New York, so we had a lot of people, like 40 people, you know, <laughs> but like it was always the same people. And I was right. like, you know, these are great ideas. And like, we're talking to each other at a, this very small group for years and years on end, you know, and, and I was like, I want to go get these ideas out to other people so that other people can have these like aha moments, like you said, yeah. or be impacted by them and then like take them forward in their own way. And how do I do that? And so I started giving more talks about the arts and that sort of thing that would like reach an audience outside of the psychoanalytic community. But then when I go back and I give a talk now to like a psychoanalytic institute or you know philosophy department at a university or something, I find that because I do speak so clearly, I do get kind of looks of like, <laughs> like it's like confused in the opposite way. It's like, why is she speaking so clearly? <laughs> That's fascinating. So do you feel like, yeah, they kind of, yeah, they, they don't want you to do that. Clearly. Yeah, what's wrong with her? <laughs> I'm like, and I always have to find myself explaining. Well, I try to say these things in ways that, you know, don't use jargon. Cause some of you might not have read Lacan. So like, I'm trying not to use Lacan's jargon, but still trying yeah, to explain sure. his ideas, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're naming one of the most complicated people ever there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I'm kind of wondering what that's about, actually, because it actually does, it, it acts to lock out, to lock certain groups of people out of the conversation. Yeah. And, I, and I do really think at the moment, I do think there is a, I do think there is a, a kind of, um, there, there does seem some excitement around learning at the moment. And I think, you know, like the TED Talks, which are incredibly accessible, um, but yeah, this need to sort of keep it complicated does feel, I don't know, is that conscious or unconscious? It does feel like it's a deliberate attempt to keep it within an elite, to keep other people locked out of that conversation. Yeah, I think so. And, and maybe to keep their, their position, you know, like we're, we're up here. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, I, and, and we're think, not going to help you understand, which is kind of curious in something like psychoanalysis, which is, I'm hoping that uh, with a kind of aim of, of, of helping people, of being useful. So it's even stranger then, isn't it, in a way? Yeah, to me, absolutely. That, it really confused me. I was like, isn't, isn't that kind of the whole point of this field is to like help other people understand themselves and like feel better yeah. and not feel so neurotic or like they're shooting themselves in the foot all the time? So if yeah. we can like translate some of these ideas in a way that 
more people can understand, isn't that what we should want to do? Yeah. <laughs> and they're clearly, clearly telling you no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are kind of a traitor in some way that they, yeah, they wanted to kind of, it feels like they did want to sort of shoehorn you back into that, that kind of deliberate complexity. Yeah, and then they'll say like, oh, you're like a pop psychologist, you know, stuff like that. But on the, on the other hand, you know, like Zizek, for whatever anybody thinks about Zizek, you know, like he took these ideas and he talked about them in the political arena, in film theory, in society, in things that people are experiencing. And everyone I talk to that's like under the age of 30, they've all come through psychoanalysis through Zizek. So like, yeah. bravo, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, that is interesting. And and he is also speaking with a lot of passion. Yeah. So here we've got that thing about emotion again, that, that he is he's he's kind of allowing subjectivity and emotion and and that is what's gripping people. Exactly. I'm sure it's affected by his personal history and where he's from and the times he's formed in and then also relating it to like larger popular culture and film and society and politics that people that other people are experiencing yeah so there's something about the kind of um um i'm one i'm one of you whatever i'm one of us maybe that, that there isn't a need to kind of to to make himself superior yeah it's like and it's situated <laughs> in our current times and in history like you're saying like more integrated yeah yeah nice very nice interesting so maybe, <laughs> maybe psychoanalysis i don't know maybe is it changing i don't know does it feel like it's shifting towards that direction i hope so i mean i'm definitely trying to help it do that we started this group in uh in new york called the das umbehagen from das umbehagen in der culture the, dis the civilization and its discontents so uh -huh. we were the discontent. So it was a bunch of us who had gone through psychoanalytic training and were really frustrated with like, it was just so old and dead and, you know, they just wanted to edit everything we had to say and it had to be, they're talking about, you know, psychoanalysis and neurology, like neuropsychoanalysis and trying to like m mend the dynamics between psychoanalysis and biology and medical science and it was just like, that's fine if people want to do that, but like, I don't think we should all have to do that. You know? <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of other aspects of psychoanalysis that I would like to think about besides trying to do that or like validate it through science, you know, through medical yeah. science. So yeah, we're just like so frustrated. Yeah. Is that, is it Mark Soames? It's, Mark Soames does that, that. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's well, great if that's what he wants to do. <laughs> I've seen him talk, actually. I went to a great, um, and I can't remember who the other person was, I went to a great, an, a whole day-long debate um, at the Psychoanalytic Center at the University of Essex last year um, on uh, where Mark Soames came and he was debating with um, a very old-school psychoanalyst who said, there was no need for this neuroscience um, kind of input. And the two of them were debating whether that was true or not. And, and both were quite heated. Um, and it was kind of an interesting argument because one was kind of, uh, Mark Soames was like, we need, again, we're back to this kind of evidence-based objective. He was like, we need to put psychoanalysis onto that, onto that kind of foundation. And I wish I could remember the name of the other analyst who was, who was, um, 
saying, no, we don't need that at all. You know, we're all about sitting with the not knowing. We're, we're, we're about reverie. We're about, it's about letting, letting a knowledge kind of come up. It's a, it's a kind of far more subtle thing, really. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and yeah, they didn't, obviously they were, I guess they were never going to reach agreement, but it was really fascinating to, to sort of see them really argue it out all day. And, um, yeah, that was a, that was an interesting, yeah. So that, that's quite a big kind of topic in psychoanalysis today, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's an interesting debate, but, you know, I wish that they could coexist, you know. If some people want to study it in, in neuroscientifically, that's fine, but they shouldn't put it on everyone else to say that that's the only way or that's the only way to find truth or that's the only way to validate psychoanalysis. You know, I think that all the different, but it's also the same thing like when I went to graduate school for psychology, I thought that everybody understood that like Skinner had a point and Pavlov had a point and Freud had a point and Jung had a point and that these all, all these ideas like are interesting ideas in their own way and might fit uh, different people at different times in their lives. But then when you get to school and they're, they're teaching you this, it's like one is right and the others are wrong. It's like you have to choose a, a side or a position. And I just think yeah. that's so antithetical to everything that psychoanalysis is about. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I, I was just thinking that I was really struck for for kind of a few years before I wrote the um, What Would Freud Do? Is, the, is, this, is this other... Um, big fight that goes on between the psychologists and the psychotherapists slash analysts mm -hmm. um that the psychologists yeah that they i was like why do they seem to hate each other so much and it was because the psychologists really wanted to be wanted their their field of study to be recognized as a science and the psychotherapists were really interested in more in humanities and so um Someone explained it to me once by saying that the, the psychologists don't like the analysts and the therapists because they say that they don't know. Yeah, it's based on nothing. And the therapists and analysts don't like the psychologists because they say nothing they, they're doing has anything to do with people. And, um, and apparently this, that argument goes right back to the beginning of, of psychology as a discipline where the kind of two, two first people to kind of pick it up very seriously were um, Wilhelm Wundt in his laboratory in Germany, who started running some really extraordinary experiments as a way to find out more about the human mind. And then on the other hand, there was William James in America, who was studying his own mind very subjectively, really trying to work out what was going on in it. And so that was kind of the split from the start, that there was a kind of laboratory-based scientific um, number crunching element. And then on a completely different path was this much more subjective approach to the human mind and, and, and what is going on in there in, in a much kind of, um, actually, I'd have to say in a kind of in McGilchrist way, that's a much more right brain way to go at it. So... Yeah, one half is doing that kind of much larger, broader picture, right brain um, take on it. And the other one is trying to narrow things down to the to the narrowest possible point, actually, and, and literally pin it down like a kind of butterfly in one of those old frame pictures. Um, it's a great way to put it. Yeah. Do you know, um, do you know um, Ian McGilchrist's stuff? No. 
Well, he has this graph. We're not going to get into it. The, the kind of short, short way of understanding. He he's written a he wrote a massive. I think it's about eight hundred page book on on his study of the brain. And then, thankfully for most of us who didn't manage to get all the way through it, um, a few years ago he he printed a twenty page book with just the main points. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing that. But he he kind of what he says is that um, all um, all mammals and birds, actually, that they, well, this thing that the, the brain has the kind of two two parts and the corpus callosum running between them. And it's always there. And it's been there forever so that there's a reason for it in evolutionary terms. And, and he says the easiest way to understand how the two parts of the brain work is that um, imagine you're a crow, <laughs> um, that the crow has to be able to see a worm, like one tiny worm on the ground below it, so it can dive down and grab it to eat it. And that's what the left brain does. It really refines things down to these tiny, tiny, clear details. But also it has to be the crow at the same time has to have an overall awareness of the entire world around it so that it knows if there's a, if there's a predator coming at it from above or behind. So you've got one part of your brain is scanning the kind of whole big picture all the time. And one part is just trying to, to narrow something down to a tiny detail and also grab it. So the left brain is doing this kind of grabbing of information or grabbing of worms or whatever it is. Um, and I was thinking, oh, that does kind of sound similar to, to this split between psychology and psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. Um, the one is doing this much more kind of big picture kind of environmental sort of scanning, taking everything in. And the other one is just interested in one tiny thing. Yeah, pinning it down. <laughs> and it, yeah, it, it reminds me of like, you know, like CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy. It's like, you know, sure, when I'm having a bad day or something, changing my thoughts and like, consciously taking a moment and taking some deep breaths and like reframing the way I'm thinking about something can help. Does it solve all my problems? No, but it's a useful tool. Um, yeah. And you know, yeah. that's why yeah. I don't, because I even psychoanalysts that I know would like never give uh, a patient that kind of tool, but like, I don't have a problem doing that. If I could see that it could help someone like keep out of a panic attack spiral, then like, why shouldn't yeah. I help them with that? and then go back to the usual um, talk therapy. Yeah, yeah. And it's that flexibility again versus rigidity, isn't it? It's, it's remaining open to, to, to whatever comes up and also open to whatever kind of solution might be kind of feeling like that's the one to reach for at that point. The, the, yeah. Um, and, and when to go for the tool and when to sit with the not knowing. Right. You know, there's always going to be that that kind of, um, I don't know, instinct, judgment. I'm not sure what's coming into play there, but but certainly that those two those two things are always going to be kind of side by side. In in yeah, in a in a judgment with somebody, in sitting with somebody and working out what would be the most useful way to be with them that day in that hour. Yeah. Exactly. Well, is there anything that we didn't get to that you want to make sure we talk about? This is such a fun conversation. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think it's been uh, this has been yeah. You, you've kind of you've taken our minds into the really quite fascinating kind of quarters there. <laughs> That's lovely. Um, what are you working on now? Um, well, I'm I see clients as a psychotherapist, and I also I kind of split my week between doing that and and um, commissioning and editing the books for the Who the Hell Is series. So. I'm working on uh, Marx, which is why he probably keeps coming up today, because I've had him in my head all day. Uh, what, a book on Karl Marx, who the hell is Karl Marx, and um, and the great philosopher David Hume, who the hell is David Hume. Um, so I'm kind of kind of bouncing between those two great minds, actually. Wonderful. Uh, uh, yeah, and then and then interspersing that, yeah, half the week doing that, and half the week doing the psychotherapy. Um, so it's all it's all about minds. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and being with people in in maybe in different ways. You know, I I am sort of spending time with Karl Marx and David Hume in in some way when I'm working on their books, and maybe that's because even as a child, I I was just kind of entering those worlds. But so so some of the week I'm being with my clients, and some of the week I'm being with these other extraordinary people. Who are kind of still around, um, whose presence is still felt in the world, actually. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, an interesting life. Yeah, it's been nice since I've moved from New York to Sweden. I have a lot less uh, patience. And, you know, I, I was used to working full time with patients and, um, I loved it. It was very rewarding, but now I'm finding I have more time for reading and writing and the, the podcast and things like that. So it's nice to have this kind of bouquet of different avenues of working within the field. Yeah, I love the idea of the bouquet. That's wonderful. Yeah, and your podcast is, is a kind of bouquet, isn't it? So it is, um, yeah, and it smells lovely. <laughs> Yeah, it's been really fun, and it's. I, I'm sure you feel the same way. But you know, when you speak with patients, um, you know, you learn so much from them, and seeing all these different perspectives and worldviews. So it's kind of another way I've been able to like see all these different worldviews and perspectives, and all these different Absolutely. things people are working on through talking to them with these interviews. Yeah, and their minds are to me just as wonderful as some of these people that we're writing the books about. Exactly. Uh, absolutely, that every every single kind of individual mind, every person, um, it, it is a, it is a real privilege to be to be able to to sit with with them in that kind of way um, and get to know them. It, yeah, amazing. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Sarah Tomley, co-founder and editor of the Who the Hell Is book series with Alice Bowden. For more information, please visit their website, whothehellis.co.uk. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon. 
p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated rendering unconscious is also a book Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. The curious collaboration between and his wife should also be mentioned. Chains subject to extremia. This is an under whiskey as I notice. Science reverence this space is wish to live. It's just us. It's sophisticated entertainment. Psychoanalytic. And that was your blocks actually formed these words. Maggots. We want to live. Separation based on. And we all presence of. A complex interviewer. Do you think such experiments were rare in the West? And have remained the best of places? I dressing up the view, I, my love source, thank you for little censorship so. One of the most successful was, undoubtedly, the collaboration of my emotions, and as possible, of work in archetype of R, especially the group of this tiny between. Both signed dimensional students is, as such, as a feminine and links with their names to romance and the inheritors at the beginning of we is made and that where the airways letter finds lives. We attract in noting the beyond the help you understand role to relearn of doing community sexuality we're the publication of each of pleasure and unpleasure to the is merely for you for as they aside eventually we can Oyster good, so color decision he makes, corresponding little trees, comment present in the mind, but is no ignorance, but is no human sense.
running jack. What part of co-hosting the show relate them in such a manner merely acting and our consciousness in that will that develop and think? I think that and from ancestors, but to break as his own by them, reinterpreted by the hate for us to superimpose. Old-fashioned candy of hope, what will happen, maybe, everything come together, aimed at a collective creation with the exquisite corpses, dream states, not processes, we try to estimate, ask a question, such as, and then when I'm Skyping, party game that led to such publication as sleep, conscious to the topographical course I've been. The coconut leaves enough have to be anchored. There's boring ally, challenging trade for an eclectic range of ever not domain. With discipline, definition that we giving the most Writing, write. Scientists are already at large. Continually an artist in residence model. With the publication of sound as the public and at present conceived. The whole line emerging with the growth. Number of variations of in mighty judge particles through radioactive sexuality. More old, that shit. Impure, every, who never grows. That's what I've already done. Scientists, I hope, will continue to do for their own right. Eroticize, rapidize, it following distance. Anybody, it could be any body, situations and circumstances, striking various notes, community, painting us, and how to write. Already, the ancestors of the, the century, in the same spirit established, be it in varying but concurrent, joined in writing a travel book. Journey to the war, be it in the end of matter.